Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. It's been a newsy week in Cleveland, and we're here to unpack it. It's This Week in the CLE, the podcast from cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor of cleveland.com, and I'm here with columnist Mark Namick, Jane Cahoon, who edits our political coverage, Corey Schaefer, our reporter down at the Justice Center, and Rich Exner, Cleveland.com's very well-known data expert. We have transportation issues to start with today, and first among them is what's going on on 490. Uh, As construction begins on the final leg of Opportunity Corridor, we learn that they're going to close a key commuter roadway, I-490, for two full years, uh, which seems a bit much. Rich, you uh, put the story together on this this week. Tell us why we lose that road for two years. Uh, Two reasons. They they want to get the work done as as quickly as possible, and it's gotten complicated there, where they're going to actually build this new road underneath East 55th Street, so as opposed to just altering an interchange or, or, or making some minor changes, they're going to have to construct uh, a tunnel underneath an existing road. And then the other thing is that they believe that they have detours that once people get used to them, they won't be so bad because they're, they're nearby and have other ways to get you onto the street. But as the commenters on your story pointed out, you could do a lot of the work on the rest of that road and condense the stuff that has to happen at East 55th and allow people to continue to use it. How many people use that road every day? You get about 39,000 vehicles a day, so th- that's, that's, a lot of, that's a lot of vehicles that are using it. And anyone that's down there at the busy times knows it's, it's a mess now, so it's a mess because people are using it. What are they doing on Interstate 77 to deal with the overload that will come that way? So at that point, if you're coming up Interstate 77 in the morning, say, or coming from the west side uh, from across 490 and continuing down that stretch, it's going to be closed. Uh, there's a lot of vehicles now that jump off the highway right there. So now because of this closing, more vehicles will be continuing north. So you're going to get an extra lane on the freeway uh, going north. Where it's two lanes now through there, you'll have three lanes to continue up to the uh, East 30th Street where a lot of people will be getting off. Jane, you're an Eastsider. You've used this uh, 490. You you know what a headache this can be. What do you think Eastsiders will do to cope with it? Oh, boy. We always find a way, but uh, it's it's going to ruin my um, commute to the airport when I ever have to get to the airport. But on the other hand, I'm kind of looking forward to two years from now uh, traveling on this boulevard. I think it might be. Yeah. I might be in the minority uh, believing that, but... Yeah, it's always been odd that I-490 comes to this dead stop at 55th because they originally envisioned a a road going through Shaker Heights that people back in the day fought off. So it's been an awkward intersection. Ultimately, this will be a nice way. Right. A boulevard will be a lot nicer than a freeway going through there. Except all you drivers from the east side are going to try to drive like it's still a a, a high-speed lane. And we saw this on the the West Shoreway where they've reduced the speed to 35 and nobody can can get there. And the police still have to be out there (laughs) ticketing. Hey, I travel uh, 77, been traveling north 77 for years. One of the benefits of this, when it is all done, is they are going to... We had a high accident area right at 77 and 490 where people would uh, turn off to go to 490 for that very small jog over to East 55th. And and looking at some of ODOT's materials uh, recently, this is one of those uh, areas that they believe they can alleviate because there's going to be an additional lane. Um, And all of that's getting reworked on the bridge, which is going on right now that goes over 490. So I guess I can suffer through a couple more years (laughs) because I just did six years on the Internet 
or interbelt bridge. But think about it, though. I mean, they're going to add an additional lane on 77, which is a pretty packed road as it is. Narrowing those lanes to fit more traffic, isn't that going to make you a little more nervous? Hey, if you've ever driven out west in California or any in the more congested, real congested areas, those lanes are significantly uh, smaller uh, in a lot of parts of the country where traffic is, is higher. We're just going to have to learn to maybe for once, you know, get 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 with the rest of the country all right but but they, i'm an east sider i go up cedar hill all the time those have the narrowest lanes we don't do it at 70 miles an hour what well, will the speed limit be there it'll probably be the same or, or close i think the speed limit is probably not um, 60 now yeah but we, we west siders got used to that uh when they were rebuilding the inner inner belt bridges downtown as they did the same thing to 490 it was a little herring going across 490 but it did keep the traffic moving where they they made more lanes and made them skinnier like that and once people do get used to this, as a West Sider who always is trying to explain to people how to get to University Circle, uh, this is going to be a lot easier. And, and remember, this, orig- this idea originally came out when they were trying to figure out whether to rebuild the bridge, whether to redo Dead Man's Curve, and all these things. That, that's where this idea came from, is to take traffic away from downtown. So it, it's going to be easier to get downtown once it's done. But we've got to wait for that. And it's, this job is closed for two years. The whole thing's not going to be done for three years, so we're still three years away from seeing the benefits. All right, with all that optimism, Rich, I'll look for you to be out there on the opening days of this, and you can get back to us on how smoothly it's all going. Well, opening day will be terrible, but it is Memorial Day week, so traffic's a little bit less. I don't know where they picked that for, for that reason. It's the Wednesday after Memorial Day. Give it a couple of weeks. Everybody will figure it out. They always do. All right, and another transportation issue, kind of. Um, We had a a story this week in which it became pretty clear that the city of Cleveland was misleading everybody about the extent of hacking at the airport. There was uh, ransomware uh, that got onto the computers out there, shut down the signboards for departures and arrivals and baggage claim, uh, and the city, as late as Friday, put out a press release saying, we were not hacked. Clearly, they were hacked, Mark. Why the subterfuge? They were splitting hairs over what the definition of a hack, malware, and ransomware is so that they could stand behind the idea that these were still technical issues. And let me give you an example. Um, We, Cleveland.com, first broke that, in fact, they acknowledged it was ransomware. And that uh, when I asked specifically uh, the head of their IT department, do you consider malware, this case, to be ransomware, they said yes. Why? Because they did get an email that said, if you want to know more information about what's going on, email us. They didn't email them wisely, but because that's where the ransom was once you sought the information. Um, and so the city kept playing this game of, well, we, we, there was no ransom. Well, that's because they didn't ask. But step back. They know it was there. But, but step back. I mean, the, the, lots of people get hacked. If and, and the easy thing would have been to say, yeah, we got hacked. It shut down our signboards. There's no security issue. Instead, in the vacuum, you had other media trying to get at it, getting small pieces of it, but then getting things wrong, like, like that the payroll system was hacked. It was a kernel of truth and that they moved the payroll system to avoid being hacked, but it wasn't hacked. Somebody else reported that the ransomware was for Bitcoin. Wrong. And it allowed the city to say these reports are wrong, but but none of this would have happened if they just would have said, we got hacked, we're dealing with it, we did everything right when we learned about it, the FBI is helping us. It's exactly what happened, Um, and this leads us to the second part of this story, which is the bad communication on it. I mean, there is no reason why they couldn't have come out. They knew, and and I re-listened to the press conference multiple times, and you kind of had these varying timelines. Kennedy uh, who's the airport director out there is mentioning that, uh, like, you know, we knew Sunday, Monday, meaning that was a week ago, that this stuff was was there and it was some form of, of a ransomware malware, but they weren't admitting it for four or five days. It made no sense. And uh, they were on the defensive. Uh, Chief of Communications, Valerie McCall, uh, you know, for four or five minutes you know, not only said we didn't intentionally mislead and that she was offended by people saying they lied. And at the end of her remarks, she said, you need to give credit where credit is due. And that's to us, the city, because we were giving you information as this went on, yeah. even if we didn't know the whole picture. But they weren't. Handled it as badly as you could possibly handle it by allowing misinformation to grow 
in that vacuum. The odd thing here is, is I, I really, you know, I know the mayor a bit, and I don't think that it is the mayor's goal to misinform, but he allows his public relations office, and has for years now, to completely founder. And so so they screwed this up. They, I mean, this would have been over and done, and, and as we understand it, lots of people were giving them advice to just, hey, come clean. There's no, there's no embarrassment here. Everybody gets yeah. hacked, and yet they do a disservice for everybody. They do a disservice yeah. for themselves. They do a disservice for their boss, and most importantly, yeah. they do a disservice for the public. I, I want to yeah, emphasize that they were playing games. You know, it was ransomware, but because they didn't ask how much, they they were able to stand behind and go, "Well, we didn't what ransom? We didn't we didn't get a ransom." Well, yeah, you did. You just correctly didn't click the email and ask. You knew what was going on. It's it was a game, and, and I think a it ended standoff as a result at the press conference. Yeah. Yes, and it's worth yeah watching. You can find it on Cleveland dot com um, because uh, Hannah Drown, our reporter, has a Facebook Live where she has the entire thing. You can hear the FBI, Kennedy, and uh, Chief McCall all speak on there. All right, another explosive story comes from the Justice Center where Corey covered a hearing yesterday or this week in which a defense attorney leveled an astounding accusation at the special prosecutors investigating corruption and abuse at the jail. Before we unpack it, Corey, what exactly did the defense attorney, Roger Sinnenberg, say? So he said that uh, this whole hearing was about discovery, which is the exchange of evidence before trial. So Roger got up there and he was arguing that, uh, you know, they should share as much evidence as possible. One of the things that he uh, mentioned was these agreements between prosecutors and potential witnesses. Basically, there's two kinds of agreements. There's a proffer. There's a non-prosecution agreement. Um, The non-prosecution agreements are the more explosive ones where they basically say, we have evidence that we can charge you with a crime. We won't do that, but you have to cooperate with us. And part of that agreement is that uh, they have to, people have to resign or they have to pay back money. Okay. All right. So one of the chief facets of their investigation is whether or not Armin Budish coerced or extorted uh, the CEO of Metro Health Hospital, Akram Boutros, to get rid of a guy who was working in the jail. And, and you know, they're, they're, what they're looking at is some implied threat because... Armin Budish does have some control over the Metro Health budget. How is that different than having a prosecutor go to somebody and say, quit, or we're going to charge you? I mean, how does that not fit a more aggressive definition of the word coercion or extortion if Armin Budish did that and is guilty of those crimes? Uh, I mean, I, I think non-prosecution agreements in public corruption investigations are kind of... I, I don't think they're unheard of. I think they're these are public employees, and, and they're basically saying we could charge you with a crime. I, I think they think that there has to be like a, a carrot and a stick, right? Right. So, but how is that different than Armin Budish going to Akram Butros? He just says he didn't do this, but 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 what they're trying to get at is get rid of that guy or else, and that's coercion. How is quit or else not? I mean, if you look at the letter of the law that they're trying to apply, how are these cases different? What's the line of demarcation? And saying, well, it's traditional, doesn't really cut it. Have they addressed this at all? I mean, no. I no. I love the way you, you, you characterize it in the story where Roger Sinnenberg launches down this path and then stops, turns to the prosecutors and says, what did he say? Do you have anything to say? No, he said, uh, yeah, so he, he interrupted himself. He started going down this whole line and was like, you know, they've entered agreements with multiple people uh, in, to not prosecute them in exchange for money, to not prosecute them for, and then he stopped and he was facing the judge. So he turned around and looked at uh, you know Dan Caceres and Matt Meyer and Paul Susi all at the table and They're said the prosecutors. the prosecutors, right? And said, "Am I wrong?" And nobody said anything. <laughs> and then he turned back to Judge Cosgrove and said, "To not prosecute them in exchange for them resigning their jobs." What was that moment like? On. Was it pretty tense? Uh, I mean, the whole thing—it it was weird. It started out really the, the whole hearing was tense from the beginning because uh, you know this was supposed to start at one. 
the attorneys had agreed to come in at 1230 and meet in the back and talk about some more sensitive discovery issues um, in the back. And some attorneys got there and some didn't. So one o'clock came and uh, Dan Caceres came out and said to Roger Sinnenberg, hey, we got to go in the back. And Roger immediately said, well, no, the time, the time for that's over, Dan. It's one o'clock. It's time to go. And they immediately started jaw jacking back and forth with each other. And then they all went in the back and they came out. And what's uh, the judge doing at all this? I mean, is the judge watching this and and thinking he's dealing with a bunch of children misbehaving, or is the judge just kind of sitting back and let it play out? So this is Judge Patty Cosgrove, and she it's uh, a visiting judge. The from, visiting judge from she's a retired Summit County judge. She does a lot of these cases. She did the the Lance Mason, um, the first Lance Mason case. Um, she she's trying to keep these two sides in line i mean she's you know she said that she takes a liberal view of discovery and so um you know she basically it seemed like she compromised down the middle with the prosecution was trying to keep the defense attorneys from sharing evidence among each other even though they're all charged on the same indictment um and she stopped that she said you know you guys you guys they have to be able to share evidence um but she also ordered a lot of stuff to be given to her for in camera or to to place a protective order on it to keep them from to keep the defense attorneys from sharing it with other people so you know that they she's she's really trying to cut down the middle and she she did stop um you know one thing they didn't make it in the story was it's it's kind of a convoluted thing this is why i didn't really make it in there but roger was saying that um you know, he was using public records requests to get emails and things like that instead of using a defense subpoena. And the county law department was consulting with the prosecutor's office, the civil side of the prosecutor's office, on what public records they could give, which uh, they do all the time. Oh, but the prosecutor's office has been removed from this From case. the criminal investigation. So this brought them back in. Sure. Oh, that's so, interesting. So Roger was arguing, and, and he went as, as far to ask Judge Cosgrove to order um, the prosecutor's office to show cause why they shouldn't be held in contempt for violating their own order, but she immediately said, no, it's it's a different issue. It's a public records issue. Issue your defense subpoenas. If they fight that, then we'll come back and argue it. Right. You had one other thing in the story that, that made my eyes pop open. Back when um, Bob Dykes, the personnel chief of the county, was D- indicted, Doug. Uh, Doug, I'm sorry, Douglas Dykes, yeah. on, a, mm-hmm. uh, on, on a felony charge, um, you'll recall the editorial board here took a stand saying, this is ridiculous, you're criminalizing um, bad decision-making, you don't have an intent, you don't have personal enrichment. Um, you you revealed in your story that they're offering him the sweetest of sweetheart deals now, right? Make a plea, we'll wipe this felony completely off your record, but then you'll have to sit down and proffer for us. So Dykes is going to be, Dykes who maintains he's done nothing wrong, is faced with a very difficult decision, right? Spend probably hundreds of thousands of dollars to fight this charge at trial or take this deal in which you pretty much go scot-free with nothing so the prosecution can say, well, he pleaded guilty. Um, I mean, there's more more penalty to him for this. This will never go away. It'll, you know, Even though it might disappear from his criminal record, it'll always be in, in the news files. But why so lenient on him? Why, why, after being so aggressive and hitting him with a felony, are they willing to wipe it all away? Uh, I think this is... Uh well, one one part of the agreement would be that he would have to proffer, which I mentioned earlier was another agreement, which is basically where you sit down and subject yourself to more questioning by investigators, and you waive. They they agree to like you know basically allow you to if you incriminate yourself in these questions, then they they're not going to pursue further charges. I mean, unless it's unless you sit down and say, yeah, I, I killed a guy, and they're like, well, we have to charge you for that, but. Uh, but if he's saying I did nothing wrong, yeah, and he's so, taking his plea to make it go away, and he proffers, what if he says I got nothing? That's I think that's a risk that um, the the state has probably looked at and decided that they're willing to take. If if he maintains that he doesn't have any any other information, then I mean that's they can't they can't withdraw their agreement. Is it possible that they're making this deal because they are under some pressure here that, that, you know, this case seems a little bit overzealous at times, and if they get him to take a plea, it gives them some cover? Um, I mean, 
perhaps the other the other way to look at it is maybe the goal all along was to get him to cooperate and and to flip which is what you see a lot in public corruption investigations you go in you know you don't usually start off with the big the big fish right from the first round of indictments so um you know they they must have felt that the payments to John John Hay were fruit low-hanging fruit yeah, enough let, that they could charge him. Explain that a little bit. That he was given John Hay, who was hired to be the, what the IT chief. Uh, yeah, chief technology yeah. officer or something uh, like that. Was given a tens of th- ten thousand dollar signing. Bonus it was yeah. Was they, they moved the money around a little bit. It was supposed to be thirteen thousand five hundred, I think, in moving expenses. But he never actually moved. But it was still they still right. wanted to give him the money. So and then later an audit found that's completely improper. He, improper they, and trying then, to get the money back. Yeah, and, and that, Dykes was the one that did this. So Dykes did it on his own, and I think he's accused of misleading uh, misleading someone into think into that he had approval to do it. Do you think you'll see other offers like this to the other defendants in the case so far? Or do you think um, he's alone? I'm sure that I, I'm I'm sure that they probably will eventually offer a plea. If they haven't already, and they, we just don't know about it. Okay. Uh, Jane, first 100 days of Mike DeWine passed last week, and he was kind of busy. His first official act, really, was to seek an increase in taxes, a very Republican initiative. Uh, what else did he do in those days? Well, he's done several things that uh, you would consider very un-Republican. He's uh, put forth a budget that calls for increased spending on things like early childhood, um, support services for at-risk school kids, uh, public health. Um, He's appointed a cabinet that is very diverse. Out of a couple dozen people, 15 are women. Uh, That's a big contrast with with John Kasich, who, as you might recall, uh, there was a story with all the white male faces that you know, he named to his cabinet. Uh, and um, DeWine also has five African-Americans, I believe, in the cabinet. And um, and you mentioned the, the tax increase, which the gas, uh, the gas tax increase, which was part of his transportation budget. He didn't get it all, but he did get um, a good chunk of it. And, um, and then he did one of the most Republican things he, possible. He, right. Now we get to the other hand, which is... Um, he uh, signed one of the most restrictive abortion bans in the country, the heartbeat bill, uh, which bans abortion after a fetal heartbeat is detected. Um, he also, his first bill signing was a gun bill uh, that pleased the um, Second Amendment folks. Uh, it just, it was a simple correction of sort of a typo in some legislation, but it could have inav- inadvertently banned some some weapons. So, although this week he did, he did, the word came from uh, Columbus that he's seeking to create a red flag law, which the gun lobby is dead set against. Right, right. Could you and talk a little bit about what that is? Well, uh, he said his office is working on red flag legislation, which would um, allow courts to seize guns from people who are uh, deemed to be dangerous to themselves or others, and. Uh, John Kasich tried to get this done when he he kind of softened on guns toward the end of his uh, last term, and um, the legislature really said no way. Um, but now, supposedly, Dewine is uh, well. They only had one sponsor the first time around, uh, and Dewine he's talked a lot about this this past week. I think he, you know, he's try his exact words were he wants to find find a version of the red flag that he believes can pass among the right one that will allow people due process it was interesting as soon as the news came out that that was in the works the the gun lobby came out and said no no that's absolutely not <laughs> happening but the wine's office came back right and they said, yes, did we they reaffirmed after after um i think it was the buckeye firearms association told its members don't worry this isn't going to happen uh dewine's office confirmed that in fact they are working on it it would be true i mean that w- if that were to pass which it's a big question in this legislature it would be the first what you know what you could call a retrenchment of gun laws in ohio and my, 
how many years? It'd be decades, right? I mean, we've had decades of every law has loosened it a little bit more, and it would be interesting if Mike DeWine is the the proponent that says, okay, okay, we're kind of out of control. Let's pull it back a little. It's common sense. He's saying, look, if somebody's having mental distress, probably not the best right. thing to have a gun, but um, but it's still a big big thing for Ohio, right? I think, yeah, and I think it was after the last um, synagogue shooting that that prompted him to say that. Let's not forget, however, that uh, lawmakers also would like to further loosen the uh, concealed carry law. By essentially eliminating it. (laughs) (laughs) Just want to eliminate it. Pretty much. Pretty much. That that you wouldn't have to have a sheriff's permit. Or training. Or training. Right. Well, if you're a strict Second Amendment backer, you could argue that any law violates that. Although even Ted Dieden, our conservative <laughs> editorial board member, does not agree uh, that that kind of thing should happen. Well, thanks for the conversation, Jane, Corey, and Rich. After our break, we'll talk about how the Cuyahoga County prosecutor is blocking the county council from doing oversight on many of the problems at the county jail and where our high schools stand in the latest national ranking. It's this week in the CLE. We've been telling you for a few weeks now about Project Text, in which you and our writers engage with each other through text messaging. Here's a great deal, a free trial to Project Text for the month of May. Sign up at cleveland.com slash projecttext slash free trial and get daily text messages from your favorite writers, like Browns Beat reporter Mary Kay Cabot, sports columnist Doug LaMaries, and pop culture guru Troy Smith. This week in the CLE, I'm Chris Quinn, joined by Mark Namick, Jane Cahoon, and in this segment, reporters Courtney Astolfi and Emily Bamforth. Courtney, you're up. We've been wondering for some time when the Cuyahoga Council members would get off their keisters and start doing some oversight on the jail. We're six months beyond the revelations of how bad things are, and one of the chief purposes of the council is supposed to be oversight. This week, you bring us news that the county prosecutor is actually trying to stop the council from doing that up oversight. What's the deal with that? Well, the issue here is the county prosecutor's office, I I believe, thinks that by delving into some of these dicey topics that have been at the center of what's been going on at the jail and all the discussions that came out of the U.S. Marshals report in November, they don't want counsel getting into those dicey topics in open hearings because it could essentially jeopardize the the county's ability to argue in the lawsuits that it's facing. Here's the thing, though. I mean, we, we're six months in. We You've reported with your colleague, Adam Faris, almost daily revelations about how things aren't fixed. The only government body we have at our disposal to get to the bottom of that is the council, and they're now not going to do the job because the county prosecutor is trying to save some money. And that leaves the public in a weird place where they want answers. We want this information in open hearings, but those that are in the position to provide that information don't want to go down that road. You know, Mark, the, the, the prosecutor's office is the civil attorney for the county, so they are doing their job and trying to stem the bleeding that's coming from the will come from these civil lawsuits. But does the county council have to follow the no, advice? No, they can, they can ignore it, and uh, they can also be willing to, on certain topics, or if they get into something, maybe take a witness uh, statement privately. They can work something out with them, but I, I, they don't have to follow. And if you remember, our count, this county reform was set up so that the prosecutor remains independent and separate from counsel. Well, and, and as from reading your story, the 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 basic um, situation that brought up this objection is the the council committee started to ask about red zoning. This is, red zoning is where you lock inmates down in the rooms with nothing to occupy them, uh, and there's some evidence that it's causing mental distress. It's kind of the heart and soul of what's going on at the jail, and the minute the council asks, so what's going on with red zoning, you know, well, 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 can't talk about it because that could hurt us in lawsuits, but it's kind of important for the council to understand that, right? Right. I mean, the council has touched on other topics related to the jail, but the nitty-gritty meat of kind of the root of these problems, if you can't touch it. Do you get the impression that the council members may kind of rebel against this advice and say, no, we were elected to represent the people, we have to do this? Or do you get the feeling like, 
Nope. Again, the, the, the lawyer said we can't talk. We have to walk away. What do you think? How the, will this resolve? I think we're going to see a little bit of, of that. This week we saw Councilman Dale Miller push back on that and broach the topic, but it seems like they're deferring to that advice from the prosecutor's office on these weighty topics. So until then, we have you to provide the oversight because you're the only one asking the questions. Um, while the county council continues to fail at being transparent, we have some good news about transparency from the state, as Governor Mike DeWine announced a bunch of reforms to the parole board. One of the key changes would be live streaming of parole board hearings, most of which have long been closed to the public. Before we talk about the changes that are being proposed, Jane, what happened with the parole board to spark DeWine to want to take action? Well, uh, the governor's office tells us that it was not any one individual or media outlet that spurred these changes, but this is there have been criticisms for a really long time about the lack of transparency, lack of diversity, uh, but they really uh, it were amplified recently when uh, former state senator Shirley Smith resigned from the board and went public, wrote a big letter. Um, about all these these things, outlining her concerns about it. And um, some of them, I believe, were, were taken seriously, um, including this lack of diversity, both uh, racially and professionally, uh, the fact that the board was stacked with a lot of insiders, you know, people who worked in the correction system and seemed predisposed to denying parole uh, in many cases. So... Um, but that d- really, d- I think. But she also had things like they weren't doing much work, or they would no, they would eat right. lunch, eat during lunch, the and, and or they wouldn't go to a hearing, and then they'd vote on it. And um, so, part of these reforms are training for the board members. And um, uh, Annette Chambers Smith, the new prisons director, she's the one who um, technically makes the appointments to the parole board. She has named uh, three people. Uh, to the board to address some of these concerns. One is uh, an African-American lawmaker who's resigning from there to take this post. Uh, the other is a uh, an assistant prosecutor, and the other is a um, pu- uh, assistant public defender. And then there's a fourth opening, actually, that is supposed to be filled by someone with expertise in mental health or addiction counseling. So give them a broader background on that board. Another thing they seemed to do was to really give the victims more of a voice. Like they might have an abbreviated hearing where there's no objections to the release, but if the the victim's family... If they want it, then they will have a final hearing. Otherwise, they'll streamline it if they're all going to recommend parole then they'll they'll skip that last step but if the the victim's um, family wants it or the victim then they will have the hearing um, they also and this would is I think the only thing that would actually require legislation they want to give uh, victims access to the offenders um, I think they're called like summary reports or something that outline what kind of programs they participated in in prison, their disciplinary record, and whether they received treatment and so forth. Um, Because right now, I guess the victims don't have access to that. But that, to me, seems like something that the legislature would go for. It's pro-victim, pro-crime victim. victim. You know, we we cover a lot of crime here, and people are very interested. This is a whole extra element that we really haven't had much chance to explore, and watching those hearings could be kind of interesting. Courtney, another one of your stories this week is about how close we are to having a plastic bag ban in Cuyahoga County. It's interesting. This is something that had, had been moving at full steam and then kind of came to a dead stop. What's What's got this moving again, and how close are we? Well, it does seem like we are all systems go. Those on council seem to believe that this proposal has way more of a broad consensus than the last proposal, which was introduced in 2017. It would have included a 10-cent fee on bags. This is an outright ban. And I think at least Sonny Simon, one of the primary sponsors of the bill, thinks that this has more legs, this has more support, because it's not charging extra money to folks who want to use bags. It's just getting them out of Cuyahoga County. 
So one of the things I've always wondered is why they don't include legislation that has grocery stores have signs in their parking lot saying, don't forget your bags, because so many people have them in their car, forget to bring them into the store. Any talk about something like that? As far as providing bags to folks? No, it's just to, to remind people as they're going into the store, hey, get the bags out of your trunk, Bozo, you forgot them. Not that I'm speaking from personal experience. It sounds like there's going to be a push for educational efforts throughout the county so local folks know what their options are, and it's it's more in the front of their minds as this moves forward. Mark, you've read some stories you mentioned where this can have some unintended consequences. What was that about? Yeah, there, there was, there's been... A number of studies, but one in particular that jumped out is that trash bag sales jumped after grocery bag bans went into effect because while the argument is we have to do away with single-use bags, which is what a grocery bag is considered because of its very thin layer, uh, they found that most people are using these bags for putting their dirty sandals in when they go to the beach the lining of the trash can they pick up their you know pick up after their dogs they use these and when you take those away people go well i need that bag i'm just go out and buy more that's an unintended consequence i think this is coming at a time when there is finally a healthy discussion about you know when we put these bans into effect what are we really accomplishing because there's you can find multiple articles we can do a whole podcast on varying studies that say if your goal is to reduce carbon footprint this doesn't necessarily work because paper products generate as much uh, cotton bags are as much um, people are now starting to look at grocery stores that that single use bag may be the least offensive thing in there you know toothbrush plastic can't be recycled uh, walk down any of the other aisles and you're going to see loads and loads of over packaging some of it is for sanitary issues but these are things with multiple layers that can't be recycled easily or there is no market for that type of plastic so what's the goal here uh, you've ne- you've certainly accomplished one, and that's making it way more inconvenient for <laughs> for a shopper. I, although you, you, I do give them some credit. You know, we talked in the, a few minutes ago about their lack of of oversight, but it, it, I mean, at least they're sparking a conversation. Um, maybe not. Yeah, but, yeah, no, but I don't know that we've heard too too much on this. And maybe Courtney can say she sat through the hearings. I mean, have we had a, a debate over you know the unintended consequence of a bag ban? That really hasn't come up in hearings. Most of the members of the public who have appeared have been in full support, and they haven't really gone down that road. I think it's really interesting because, Courtney, you said one of the major arguments um, for the support, the overwhelming support of this measure as opposed to the one two years ago, was the burden on the poor. But under the previous resolution, you would have had to forget your bags a hundred times or um, to get a $100 fine, whereas this, if people start enforcing it, you're going to get a $100 fine the first time you don't take your bags. Well, the fine will be for the establishment. Oh, okay. Um, in, in any case, if pe- the poor go to a grocery store and don't have a reusable bag, they're going to have to buy one again. They're going to, unless, and I don't know, Courtney, have they discussed pickup points for providing reusable bags like community centers and other places? Because I know they discussed that as part of the first legislation. That was a comment at this, the meeting this week. Councilwoman Simon said that they're working with the Solid Waste District to get some sort of grant to provide these bags to those in the community who need them. Is this rushing this time because of what happened last time? Last time, as this debate festered, you had the lobbyists, especially from the plastic bag side, um, come on very, very strongly. And it, it, it kind of mucked up some of the debate here. Are they rushing this through to try and slip it under before that that lobby can mount up a big argument? I've never been overtly told that. This does seem to be moving fast, and I know that there are concerns about how the lobbyists may um broach this topic down in Columbus, but here locally, I haven't heard much yeah, discussion much. of that. Remember, in Columbus, there has been discussion, and maybe Jane jumps in on this, uh, that they, some legislators wanted to pass a law oh, right. that would prevent 
any community from passing a ban. Now, that's offensive on many levels because, again, mm-hmm. you're, you're now have taken the whole debate out and you've just decided. There, again, we may ultimately come to a, a better solution through some of these bans and debates to getting at what plastic is, is best, worst, et cetera. But yeah. uh, that bill has not passed uh, as far as I know. Well, this legislature, legislature uh, certainly hasn't been hesitant to preempt local laws. Emily, one of the stories people keep reading this week is about Baldwin Wallace ending Mm -hmm. its affiliation with the Methodist Church, an affiliation that dates to before the Civil War. How come? Um, They were founded by the Methodist Church, and uh, the Methodist Church was a big supporter when it was first founded. The chapel on campus came from that affiliation, even though now it largely focuses on uh, services that aren't Methodist or Methodist focused and so people were all up in arms after uh, a summit where uh, Methodist officials and delegates voted against allowing LGBT clergy or LGBT weddings in the church still it was called the traditional plan and so all of the Methodist colleges in Ohio signed a letter expressing their discontent with the decision. Baldwin-Wallace trustees, 10% of who are Methodist, all voted to separate from the Methodist Church. So the school does not receive funding from the Methodist Church. There are some scholarships that come from the Methodist Church, but those will continue to be honored. So it's it's a big debate in the Methodist community. You're seeing this all over the country, but Baldwin Wallace is the first to officially make this split in Ohio. Yeah, it's a big deal and a big change. And while change is happening there, some things in education never seem to change, like seeing Solon atop the uh, school <laughs> education rankings. Full disclosure, my wife is a special ed teacher in Solon. Uh, what are the rankings this year telling us about high schools in uh, Ohio and Northeast Ohio? Pretty much the same thing they always do. Uh, you're seeing the same three public high schools on top of the list as there have been for the past I think it's the past three years at least Um, so number one is Walnut Hills High School in Cincinnati we're seeing Solon come in at number six they're consistently on top Um, we also have Hudson we have Aurora and when you look at these rankings you really have to see what data they're using because they weight things differently and The number one factor they use is college readiness using um, participation and performance on AP testing um, and other college tests, which obviously students have to pay for. There are, you know, arguments that AP tests actually aren't good indicators of whether or not somebody is ready for college. So if you look at this list, you're seeing a lot of schools that do not have a high percentage of students who are economically disadvantaged. Um, You're seeing places where they're able to spend a little bit more money on their students, and you're seeing places that generally have a pretty high uh, median um, household income. Someday I'd love to see a ranking that somehow balances the educational attainment um, against the the percentage of students in poverty because you, mm-hmm. you can see it that there's a direct correlation um, with the difficulties of education when somebody's in poverty they're not getting their food they have transportation issues they lack the clothing and so they might not show up it's attendance issues but none of these ever really seem to take that into account not really and you can use these as a jumping off point if you're moving to a new area and you're trying to figure out where you know, the different uh, great high schools are. Some of these, there are two in the Cleveland area. That would be the early college high school and the College of Science and Medicine. Um, But you look at that and then you look at the school district report card, state report card, and they have an F on the state report card. So you can use this as a jumping off point, but the school district choice and what high school is right for your students that ultimately comes down to way more factors that could ever be decided in a ranking 
All right, and we have uh, we have a strange one, something spooky happening on the west side of the town. We're in a neighborhood, people's garage door openers and automobile key fobs suddenly are not working, uh, which is raising all sorts of questions about what's happening in that neighborhood. So what is happening in that neighborhood? So <laughs> it's, it's really interesting because we do not have answers on this yet. There's a lot of speculation about what might be happening, but basically people are trying to use their key fobs in their driveways and they aren't working they will go other places and they're working people think that it might have to do with uh, radio frequency either from um, different wi-fi boxes or uh, some first energy stations people think it might be coming from the airport i (laughs) they may think that there's disruption going on at the airport which there is but it's not about radio frequency uh so People are just frantically trying to figure it out. They called it AT&T out. They said, it's not us. Look at First Energy. So uh, nobody knows what's going on. And it, it's just a really interesting story. It's going to be, you know, we don't know what's going to happen here. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. Clearly, this is a fold in the matrix (laughs) and I want to encourage people from all over the country to come to these streets because this is your gateway so (laughs) our own version of the black hole right, that'll do it for this segment Uh, Jane Emily Courtney Mark thank you very much this is This Week in the CLE if you're enjoying our This Week in the CLE podcast, you'll want to subscribe to Cleveland.com's free morning newsletter, The Wake Up. It's waiting for you in your email when you arise each morning to bring you news from overnight in the previous day. If you read The Wake Up each morning, you're up to date. Sus- subscribe at Cleveland.com slash newsletters. And we're back on This Week in the CLE with some late-breaking news out of the Columbus, Ohio State House. Uh, I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Jane Cahoon, Mark Namick, and in this segment, Pete Kraus. Jane, we have uh, some pretty big things happening in uh, Columbus today. What, uh, what do you want to tell us? Well, the uh, House Republicans have come out with their changes to the state budget, and uh, they want to give an income tax cut. And this would actually um, benefit people at the lower end. Anybody earning uh, $22,250 or less would have a zero tax rate. And um, so, and that, but then they've got to pay for this somehow, right? So, uh, as we uh, as we uh, previewed yesterday, they are in fact um, reducing a business income uh, break that was that they had before, which is uh, the first 250000 in income uh, you didn't have to pay uh, taxes on. Now they're going to change that to the first 100000 um, The other thing that they're going to do is um, do away, apparently, with the motion picture tax credit, which was uh, quite a popular thing. Here. And that's and that's big news. I mean, we we the, the locally they've been trying to more than double the size of that. And Pete, you did a pretty big piece last year about what their vision was. You know, mentioning the fact that Cleveland State had has built a pretty big film school and is now graduating people uh, in this field. What are the financial implications of this? Well, if you talk to the F- Cleveland uh, Film Commission, they're huge. And if you talk to some of the Legislators like Kirk Shearing from Canton and, and Matt Dolan from the uh, uh, the e- eastern suburbs of Cleveland, they're very much uh, supporters of this. They think it could be a big boon for the Cleveland area. Um, last year I talked to Ivan Schwartz, who runs the Film Commission, and he, he threw out some pretty impressive numbers. Uh, over the last 10 years, 100 projects had come to town, uh, uh, bringing in $500 million to the local economy, creating the equivalent of 3,000 full-time jobs. And he believes that this could just burgeon with uh, an increase uh, in the tax credit. Uh, First thing to point out, I think worth highlighting, is the word equivalent, because uh, we don't have that industry base here, so these are not ongoing jobs. Obviously, there's a big production. They come in. And, uh, you know, the other problem that we've seen elsewhere and in here that they want to address is that not all of these jobs are going, even the, the non-permanent jobs, are going to residents. 
So that's one of the knocks on, on the industry. I think it's worth pointing out that in, in the early 1990s, I wrote a story for, for one of the weeklies that was entitled the, uh, Hollywood on the Cuyahoga. And it was about the beginning of this film commission and their vision that if they could just get some money, you know, eventually they could build this up and have this permanent industry. So that's nearly 30 years later, which just shows you how long this could take and that this is the holy grail, right, that we're going to have this industry here. But that, I, that story examined the beginning of the film commission in around 1992. But, but when I when you get to the end of uh, an Avengers movie, it was like we were talking about last week, you see a, a credits roll that has it must be thousands of jobs now that goes on and on. And as Pete, I think you reported, you know, some of these jobs pay the equivalent of $100,000 a year. I guess the question is is if there's a $40 million tax break, do we get $40 million worth of economic development? Well, that's hard to say. I mean, that's almost impossible to say. Uh, it's, this is one of these things where you just kind of have to uh, take it on faith that you're getting a good return. But I think you, it is safe to say that the industry has grown. And if you believe Ivan Schwartz, it will grow substantially if the, if the uh, tax credit is increased. And with that, uh, with that growth, he thinks there could become a permanent infrastructure of, of uh, film production here in Cleveland, the way it's developed down in Atlanta, you know, we and we and with you mentioned the uh, the uh, uh, the film um, uh, school school at, at Cleveland State. Uh, that's just another uh, way to supplement what what's going on. So I think you know there's a lot to feel uh, good about uh, and optimistic about um, uh, whether or not the tax credit can can pull that off i mean that's well, that's a tough that's a tough call and jane mark what, why is this tax credit for film this perpetual target of legislators in columbus why does this keep coming back well we saw in michigan uh which was a republican-led legislature a couple of years ago you know push to wipe it out uh they argued that a you know that you know it didn't for the millions you put in you didn't get millions back um, yeah, it's it's unclear because this, I think we all agree, was p- pretty dramatic that we thought there might be changes or a reduction. But as it, I mean, again, we only, this is minutes old, um, it shows that they've wiped it out. But but as of what, was it a year ago? It was before um, before they had the State House scandal. The This was on the verge of being $100 million, right? It, it, it was on the verge of being $100 million. It ran into a bit of a snag. Part of it was when Cliff Rosenberger resigned. He had been a big supporter of this. They were a little concerned that, that his influence may uh, drag it down. Uh, but when I talked to Kirk Shearing last year, he said he, he what he really wanted to do was make sure that the law was more transparent, more effective, and that when movies came in and asked for tax credits, that they were selected based on their economic impact. In other words, he wanted to make the tax credit more uh, effective. So is this the revenge, Jane, of Larry Householder? <laughs> well, let me just point out that, uh, Pete, you mentioned Matt Dolan. Uh, he is the Senate Finance Committee chair. He is the person who's going to be shepherding the budget through the Senate. Um, an advocate like that, you, you've got to believe this is going to run into trouble in the Senate. So let's not consider this a done deal whatsoever. So there's a good chance that the House is doing this separately without talking to DeWine or talking to the to the Senate. This could just be their their proposal, and it could hit rough rough times. Correct. Correct. And Schering is in is in the Senate now. He was the Speaker uh, pro tem of the House last year when he was talking about this. Well, I'm sure we'll hear from um, from Ivan in the week ahead because this was not the news he was uh, he was caring to hear. Um, after the break, we're going to be here talking about a novel and uh, objective way of measuring the axe and the rock hall in different kind of tiers of who who's there and who's the best and who's the worst. This is This Week in the CLE. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Pete. Thank you, Mark, for the conversation. If you want to read what Ohio's decision makers read, subscribe to Capital Letter, your first read of the morning newsletter from Cleveland.com. It's packed with tightly written summaries of everything you need to be up to date on the state's political scene. Subscribe at Cleveland.com backslash newsletters. We're back. It's This Week in the CLE. 
the weekly discussion of the news in Northeast Ohio by the people who bring you that news, the reporting and editing team at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn. I'm here with Mark Namick, Mary Kilpatrick, and in this segment, pop culture guru Troy Smith and arts and life editor Mike Norman. And we're here to talk about a fascinating uh, rating Troy put together, a very objective rating of the acts that have been inducted into the Rock Hall that had some surprises in it. Troy, can you talk a little bit about what gave you the idea and how you attacked this? So earlier this year, ESPN put out a uh, tier system for the Baseball Hall of Fame, which I thought was really interesting. And baseball is a game of stats, so it was easy for them to put together numbers where they can break off each section of the best players to the second best, you know, all time. So dealing with all time greats, the Rock Hall is hard to do that with music. is one of the most subjective things you can think of, but I tried. So I found several lists online um, that were respected, you know, that gauge influence. I uh, included some Billboard chart stuff in there, record sales, but mainly focused on critical acclaim and influence. You know, assigned a point system to each one, and that allowed me to tally all the points for every performer that's been inducted into the Rock Hall. I just broke it down into tiers. Who, who are the top who are the bottom and everybody in between. When you knew you must be onto something because the Beatles did, in fact, come out number one. Well, you kind of do a test run, right? So I, I think I had Chuck Berry, Janet Jackson, and somebody else, and I did test runs in different point systems because I didn't want something that was going to produce an outrageous result like, you know, Percy Sledge has a higher score than Chuck Berry, you know, something ridiculous. And I knew you hit it because, you know, Bruce Springsteen was, in fact, in that top list, yeah, and I'm from New Jersey. Your man, um, the boss, was, was, what, five? Five. Yeah. But what surprised you? You did go through and say you had some things you wished had come out differently. I mean, it's hard. With those early pioneers that come before the album era, like Little Richard, uh, Buddy Holly, who had a short life, uh, they, don't, they don't get the prolific career that a Springsteen or a David Bowie has. So they don't have as many albums that can land on these lists that we were giving points for. So we try to emphasize influence. Um, with lists like Rolling Stone's 100 Artists, uh, Digital Dream Door, uh, another site that has the most influential artists, and all music actually has a uh, aggregation of statistics based on how many artists have influenced other have been influenced by an artist. So that was really a statistical list we were able to give points for that helped the Chuck Berries of the world, you know, make it into the top tier. Mike, you're a longtime uh, rock music critic over at the Plain Dealer. You've had a lot of years of looking at the Rock Hall. Uh, what surprised you? What did you like about this list? What I liked about it was the from the beginning, the Rock Hall's been not only subjective because music is, but it's been controlled by insiders in a lot of ways. So from the nominating committee, even to the people who vote for it, it's not just the public's opinion about a particular artist, but insiders who have their own access to grind and politics to deal with and all of that. So what I liked about this was it was the it was an attempt to get at the uh, influence and pure artistry of the artist as judged across kind of like a Rotten Tomatoes almost approach where you know, you're doing a lot of Metacritic kind of things where it's an aggregation of it. Uh, I mean, some of the things that surprised me were uh, Aretha Franklin didn't make the top tier, and I think Troy pointed that out in his post. I, I think she's inarguably the top tier. Um, but it, it gave us results that were pretty fascinating, like David Bowie in the top tier. Very, very cool, very interesting. Yeah, he was ahead of Elvis. I'm looking, Mary has it open. He was ahead of Elvis, uh, Led Zeppelin, U2. So, so what I notice about tier one is that there's only one woman in my count. And I think it's laudable, right, that you're trying to create an objective system for something that has been so objective. Subjective. Subjective, that word. Um, but I think that what is hard is when you are factoring in influence and you're factoring in what critics say about the different artists, all people, all critics have blind spots. They have um, a way of viewing the world and perhaps a way of viewing a rock star, what a, a, a great rock star is, um, that is uh, affected by what decade they're in or you know where they're writing. And I feel like it would be smart of you. If I was doing this again, I'd try to come up with a way to 
balance out some of those blind spots and say, look, you know, women and, you know, minorities haven't always gotten a fair shake when it comes to music criticism. How can we account for that? Well, I think that with the list, though, where you see only one woman in the top tier, that's just a reflection of the Rock Hall kind of being sexist on its own without this list. You know, there aren't enough women in the Rock Hall. So even if we tried to even it out, we can't because the museum just hasn't been even in its inductions. Um, and For instance, it, Tina Turner has not yeah, been Tina inducted. Diana Ross is in shares and Cindy Lauper. You know, so I, I think that's part of that problem. Whereas Aretha Frank is really the only other female artist I would put in that top tier. You could make a case that Tina Turner maybe should be in the top tier, but she's not in the Rock Hall. Well, like, for instance, I'm looking at the marginal inductees list, and I would argue that Joan Baez is a poet, you know, just like Bob Dylan was. I mean, I think that she wrote some really beautiful poetic music, and, you know, the Rock Hall maybe hasn't given her, I, you know, I don't know what went into it, but I think there's some women in there who should be moved up, and I don't know how you do it, right? But I think you have to, you know, Joan should be included on some more of the influencer list. I think she's a victim of... A lot of the songs that she uh, sang were cover songs that somebody else wrote, and she didn't put together the albums. I mean, music, when you look at history, is so heavy on albums. And you have Bob Dylan, who probably had, he might have had the most albums on, on the list of what we were giving points for. Well, what, you know, the, the, the thing you did that I really liked about it, look, you've done a bunch of lists over the years, and as soon as you mm-hmm. do a list, everybody in the room is over going, what are you doing? Why are you picking Queen at number 15 and, and, and coming at you? Because a lot of it is more subjective. But you, you established very specific criteria, and this is what came out. And I suppose you could keep looking for other objective criteria, but... But yeah. there's not a lot of debating this because the numbers are what the numbers are. I don't know that there's ever been another objective rating of these acts. I mean, I would move Joan Baez up, too, you know, based on my thoughts on her What influence. about Stevie Nicks? I mean, she's in the I, marginal list, too. I, I think don't she- even think Stevie Nicks should be in the rock hall. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, wow. She's, first of all, she's already in with Fleetwood Mac, so you have to eliminate everything she did with Fleetwood Mac out of her solo career. Um, I don't think she's but that's not because she's a woman I think Diana Ross should be a two-time inductee I think Tina Turner should be a two-time inductee there's several other women I would take over her um, but you know who's in the last place on the list uh, you, you do have some women I think Percy Sledge you know kind of showed up towards the end you know he has one hit but you're right I try to remove my opinion but in with music it's always going to be based on someone's opinion was there anybody in the top tier that you were disappointed to see in the top tier I mean, well, the funny thing is, we I did a rank. I ranked every Rock Hall inductee with my own opinion. Um, and looking at it, I think on my list, the lowest one would have been, I would say, just looking at it, uh, Radiohead, I think would have ranked the lowest of everyone in my own personal picks. But it showed their critical their critical acclaim is, is insane. I also like to have it, after I had this system, I would take snubs that aren't in and then do the point system and see where they would land. Be, that, would be ve- that would be very interesting. Yeah. I also think you have to maybe think about evolving the system as more artists who came of age during the uh, iTunes era and the streaming era um, start to become more eligible because your album list won't really have as much impact at that point because they're not doing as many, you know, influential or That's true. And, with, and to Mary's point, I thought about adding in, you know, NPR as a list of the most important albums from women. You know, I considered adding in those lists to try to boost some of the sexism that comes with the music that's always come with the music industry um so i considered that as well um and for mike's own personal thing i I did do the math on jimmy buffett your favorite artist uh he would have ranked dead last Uh, just just getting that out of the way don't Uh, be a hater dude but it's true black sabbath as i recall was either in the first or second tier and you you said nice things about that they were like second or third I, i think because it, it, to get to the point, as Mary brought up, there is this sexism, but there's also a prejudice. You know, people think old school rock and roll. They don't value punk or metal on that level either. So those type of acts are going to fall lower than they probably should. But when you're the most influential band in your genre, that's a million dollar genre, you should be higher. Uh, for for our listeners, I think we didn't mention it. It was Medina who was the only female artist yeah, in that top tier. Uh, yeah. She actually was 17, and Radiohead was was 15. Uh, and I think the the discussion, particularly uh, the point that Mike made on 
how do we rank these artists in the digital world is an important one. I mean, you've got to, you got to start to look at the Spotify play, you know, who's had the most. I mean, you really, things have changed dramatically. I think, uh, what last year, um, I mean, you know, you had people in the, nearly a billion plays in, 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 in some of that that's got to count. Well, well, many artists don't even release albums anymore, or it's the very last thing they think about releasing. They don't create collections of music in the sense that the Beatles did or People others. also don't buy albums. They don't buy songs. You know, they pay for streaming services. I buy songs. Well. <laughs> well, they still equate those you, things. You do, Chris. Billboard does factor in, yeah. uh, and the RI, uh, the Record Industry Association, they, they do factor in streaming numbers. So you can go platinum off of streams. Uh, we didn't include that as much. I think I said in the story, Celine Dion would have had a higher score than Aretha Franklin if you just counted album sales and number one singles. Uh, but we did try to give bonus points. We're still a ways off from the current in you know landscape of music with streaming and singles affecting the rock hall weighs off um from 20, those artists the rihannas or whoever right. being 25 years in. is from the release of their first uh recording is when they're eligible so you're looking at the 90s at this point so, so troy i'm kind of curious we were talking um before we came in about how um you know disco for example was kind of poo-pooed at the time it was kind of written off but it has become a very influential genre today for artists today so how do you how do you play with that like how do you factor in influence like the beatles were influential at the time and they were also influential you know 40 years later but some acts some bands grow in influence perhaps when they um you know a decade after they uh, they released their first album. So how do you play with that, like when you're talking about influence? I think you just have to, you know, then that's their time. If you look at Kraftwerk, I think probably 20 years ago, no one was arguing for Kraftwerk to be inducted. But now because dance music's everywhere, they're the godfathers of that. So people are kind of like, where's Kraftwerk? And they're making the ballot every year. I would argue that the voter base isn't appropriate uh, in terms of its diversity, uh, to induct an act like Kraftwerk. So. All right, well, it's a fascinating piece, very provocative. You can check it out on cleveland.com. That'll do it for this edition of This Week in the CLE. Thanks, Mark, Mary, Troy, Mike. Uh, come back next week and see what we're talking about. Mm-hmm.